I'm so glad to be back in person sharing stories with you all. I'll bet you have a story to share, right? We've all got a letting go story. The next Tell Us Something Live event is scheduled for September 27th. You can pitch your story on the theme Letting Go by calling 406-203-4683. The pitch deadline is August 7th. I look forward to hearing from you. I'll call you as soon as I get your pitch. This week on the podcast, three storytellers share their true personal story on the theme Didn't See That Coming. He's like, I want that gun. He's like, and I want you to go take me to get it. And of course, I'm in love, so why, like, why wouldn't I? So I said yes. I took him to go steal the gun. I step out into the hall, and the first thing I see is a six-foot-two blonde Swedish goddess in nothing but high heels. You know, I, it's a cabaret. I figured strip shows, burlesque, you know, but in Europe, they do the real thing. It's live sex on stage, artfully done. And as we come in, he says, we're going to make the trade for fishing, but I have this one other trade if you want to make it. It's one of the greatest life lessons, but I can't share it with you unless you eat my vegetables and your vegetables both meals a day for the whole time you're here. Their stories were recorded live in person in front of a sold-out crowd on June 27, 2022 in Bonner Park in Missoula, Montana. Our first story comes to us from Katie Garding. Some bad decisions on a New Year's Eve lead to a wrongful conviction and 10 years in prison for Katie Garding. Katie calls her story, The Paths We Take. Thanks for listening. Do any of you remember what it's like to fall in love at a young age? And maybe a lot of you are going through that right now. But when it feels like nothing else matters except for that person and that you guys would be together forever, that's how it felt the night that I met James. He had walked into the store that I was working at on a night that I should have never been working. So that's, that's how I knew it was meant to be. Um, he was a smooth talker. He always knew what to say and he made me feel wanted by, from the moment we met. We went out New Year's Eve night and at this point we'd been going strong for about four weeks. And honestly, how well can you really know somebody in four weeks? If you would have asked me then, I would have said, oh, I know everything about this guy. You couldn't tell me any different. I was in love. I was dumb. If you would ask me now, I'd obviously tell you, you know nothing about a person in in four weeks. Um, So pretty typical New Year's Eve night. We're out drinking. It's Missoula. I had just turned 21. We're bar hopping, having a good time. Um, At some point throughout the night, a guy had approached us looking for a party. He was new in town and didn't really know anybody, and so, of course, we invited him along. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, we we wound up partying with him all night long. We closed the bars down, and at this point, we're, we're pretty wasted. And James and I live out in Bonner, and there's no way we're driving home. So this guy offers us his couch to stay at with a stipulation we'd be up the next morning at, like, 6, 6.30. He was going skiing with his buddies. So we stayed the night on his couch, and the next morning, he took us back to my truck, and we parted ways. A little while later, James and I were having a very lovely breakfast at McDonald's, and uh, (laughs) he goes, hey, you know that house we just left? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, we literally just left it, so it's pretty... Um, He goes, yeah, that guy, he, uh, he left a 357 Magnum sitting on his counter, And me, at the time, knowing nothing about guns, was like, oh, nice. He's like, yeah. He's like, I want that gun. 
He's like, and I want you to go take me to get it. And of course, I'm in love, so why, like, why wouldn't I? So I said yes. I took him to go steal the gun. Later on, James and I are driving around Missoula, and we get pulled over. You would think it would, was because we had stolen a gun, but it was because I had a cracked windshield. The night before, there was a fatality, and they were looking for a vehicle that was involved in a hit and run. And so that's why they had stopped us. And during this traffic stop, James had actually wound up going to jail. Surprise! <laughs> uh, he was up here on the run for 12 felonies out of Missouri. Went to jail, and uh, that was the first time he had deceived me. So shortly after his incarceration, um, we had lost contact. We had kind of quit talking to each other. And about a year and a half later, I got a random phone call from a lawyer. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in trouble, but when you get in trouble, the state plays this game called, well, let's make a deal. If you testify, I'll give you this. If you plead guilty, we'll give you that. And this lawyer says to me, he's like, hey, the state wants to charge you. I was a little shocked and confused and didn't really know what was going on. And he said, the state's looking to charge you with negligent homicide, leaving the scene of an accident and tampering with evidence. And I'm stunned at this point. And uh, I didn't really know how to respond. And he said, this is a really good deal, and I think you should take it. And I immediately said no. I said, I'm not going to take this deal. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to plead guilty to a crime I didn't commit. And he says to me, you're never going to get an offer like this again. And you know, when we make life-changing decisions, we never really realize in the moment how life-changing they are. <laughs> Looking back now, I always wonder what it would be like if I would have taken that deal. Um, but instead, I said no. And before I get too ahead of myself, I want to tell you why this lawyer called me. So the day that James had went to jail, he knew that they were looking for a hit-and-run suspect. And because he was on the run from Missouri, we had also been charged with the burglary charge. And so he was looking at doing time in Montana as well. And he was looking at being charged with a persistent felony offender, which could land him up to 100 years in prison. So while he was in jail, he had concocted a story to get himself out and put me in. I trusted and believed in our justice system, and I believed that everything was going to turn out normal and fine you know i was like the state has nothing to prove i'm not going to be found guilty like if you would have asked me now i was like people don't go to prison that didn't commit crimes like everybody in jail is guilty that's what that's what they're there for and um i realize now how naive i was after five days of trial i was found guilty by a jury of my peers and shortly after i was sentenced to 40 years in the montana women's prison if i would have taken that deal i would have only spent five years in prison maybe I don't know if you guys know how often innocent people are incarcerated, but in the United States, over 3,000 people have been exonerated. And 15% of those people that were incarcerated were incarcerated under false testimony, just like I was. And I know we gave a shout out to the Innocence Project, but the Montana Innocence Project here in town had heard about my case about a year into my incarceration, and they had done some investigating and they had done some research and they decided to take me on as a client. They're an amazing group of people that spend their lives saving others. And they've been fighting for my freedom for the past 12 years. And 
and I know that I'm standing here in front of you guys today, but I want you to know that I'm still not free. I had to ask permission to be here tonight with you all. So they've been fighting for my freedom for the past 12 years, and 10 of that was spent in prison before I was paroled out. So I've been out for almost two years now. And I would never say that I'm thankful for this kind of an experience. I would never wish this upon anybody, but I have gained so much from this experience and so much knowledge. And I understand now what's important to me and how I wanna live my life and how I wanna honor those that have fought for my freedom and that have stuck by me this entire time. Thanks, Katie. Katie Garding is a humanitarian at heart. She believes in the connection of all things. Katie is a lover of art and the simple, beautiful things that this life has to offer. To get links to video interviews with Katie, updates about her case, and to learn more about the Montana Innocence Project, visit tellussomething.org. Next up is Linda Grindy. Linda joins a cabaret show in Hamburg, Germany, and must escape once she learns that she may be working for Nazis. Linda calls her story Last Can Can in Hamburg. Thanks for listening. It's 1975, late summer, and I am in a, a cabaret in Hamburg, Germany. No, 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 not, not the musical cabaret. I am in a real, honest-to-God, German cabaret theater performing at uh, the Salambo Theater, actually, which is where the Beatles supposedly got their international start. I am with a company of 30 performers that were hired in New York City to come and join this theater. We've been in rehearsal for three weeks, and we have a Broadway choreographer who's putting a full modern ballet to Gershwin's American in Paris on us. We are learning the, the authentic can-can with cartwheels and hitch kicks and drop to the floor splits. They've hired a specialist from Paris to come and teach us this. It, it has been wonderful. I mean, the experience has been as sunny as the weather. We all have been given our own apartment in a building that's within walking distance of the theater. They've hired a costumer to build the costumes for us, not just pull them out of storage. We have all gotten special shoes for the can-can because when you do a drop to the floor from a, from a cartwheel, those heels will just fly off unless they're reinforced. So we've been taken care of. The, the shows are so fun. There's a Judy Garland impersonator and I'm one of the three Andrew sisters, you know, the, the trio from World War II. It's been fabulous. It's the night before opening, and our producer, Monsieur Durand, has invited us all to dinner. And it is extravagant. We step out of the apartment building, and there is a line of Mercedes-Benz waiting to take us to the, Argent the Argentine Steakhouse, which he has reserved, the whole thing, just for us. He says, order whatever you want. Then, after the dinner, he stands up. Now, Monsieur Durant is German, but he uses his French name. He is a cross between 
a young Salvador Dali with a little mustache and goatee, and one of the three musketeers. He's got long, black, curly hair. In my memory, he's wearing a big hat with a plume, but that's just my imagination. And he tells us that our show is going to be added to the show that's already there. And he is effusive with his praise, how wonderful we are. He knows how to win over a room of actors. So the next night is opening night. And I'm in a small dressing room with five other performers. I mean small. If somebody has to get up to pee, we all have to pull our chairs in so you can open the door. I step out into the hall, and the first thing I see is a six-foot-two blonde Swedish goddess in nothing but high heels. You know, I, it's a cabaret. I figured strip shows, burlesque, you know, but in Europe, they do the real thing. It's live sex on stage, artfully done, but... <laughs> so it turns out that our cute little song and dance numbers are going to be sandwiched in between live porn. <laughs> you know, in reality, it's goofy. It's actually comic. Imagine the Andrew sisters waiting off stage while the S&M guy, still in his mask and leather thong, is scrambling around the floor, picking up his whips and chains and leather straps. We pick our way to the front of the stage and begin our number. Who's a loving daddy with the beautiful eyes? What a pair of lips I'd like to try and size. Right? <clears throat> well, it turns out, with the new material, each show runs about two and a half hours. And we do three shows a night. With a break in between, that means we get to the theater between six or seven and we don't get out till three or four in the morning. And we do this six nights a week. By now it's late October, so that means if you get some sleep, by the time you wake up you may have two hours of daylight. All thoughts of traveling around Europe on my time off, forgotten. <laughs> on Saturday, on Sunday, I barely have enough time to buy groceries and do my laundry. Well, days roll into weeks. We are, we are into the routine. I, my best friends are the other Andrew sisters, um, Elizabeth and Claire. In their other life, they are showgirls from Las Vegas, but out of costume, they are as down home as farm girls. One night, we're, we're sitting in the dressing room, and somebody says, is this the second or the third show? Nobody knows. We're living in this, like, murky blur. <laughs> well, by late November, the Americans are kind of homesick. It's, it's Thanksgiving back home. And Monsieur Durant invites us all to his house for dinner. We're so excited for a change, a break in the routine. We get dressed up, and I remember standing in the entryway, taking off our coats and talking, and then somebody s swings the front door shut, and that's when I see it. Right behind the door, in a prominent place, a portrait of Adolf Hitler. My brain freezes. I, mean, I, I really can't recall anything else about that dinner. 
But I do know that afterward, the Andrews sisters came to my apartment and we sat down and we started putting the pieces together. We'd been so busy working, we hadn't really thought about it. You know, Monsieur Durand is always seen with a couple of big beefy guys around him. They've decided to pay us in cash because that would be easier. This extravagant lifestyle that, that he's been showing us can't be paid for by this little theater. You know, I'm from northern New Jersey, and these girls have worked in Vegas. You know, we've rubbed elbows with organized crime. We don't know what's going on, but we got to get out. Um, you've seen the movies, right? You don't walk away from the mafia. So we, we have to come up with a plan. And, and we have to keep it secret, because we don't want to start a stampede if the rest of the company knows we're going, and we also don't want to have them make us stay. <laughs> so our plan is this. First, we have to get our passports back. Oh, they'd taken our passports about a month ago, and we hadn't heard anything about them. It was no concern until we realized we have to get them back. So we decided something close to the truth would be best, and we said to the front office that we want to go to Copenhagen on our day off and we passed her and we passed her and we passed her it takes them days but finally we get our passports now in those days to buy a ticket to New York you had to go downtown to a travel agent so we have to carve out some time in this crazy schedule to go down there and buy a ticket we get that done finally we have to figure out how do we get our baggage out of the building I mean you can't walk out the front door you know so I live on the first floor, so there, there's a little balcony in the back that goes, drops down onto a street. The girls bring their luggage down to my apartment, and while they go get a cab, I take those suitcases and throw them over the balcony one at a time so they can take them in the, suit, in the, in the cab. And I'm wondering if anybody back there, they probably see this all the time. <laughs> So they take the suitcases down to the bus station and they put them in a locker. Now we're ready. It's into December and we decide that we're gonna go on a Saturday night because no one is gonna miss us until Monday call. So we go through the first show. We go through the second show. We're excited, but nobody knows anything. We go finish our can-can, kick, drop to the floor. We jump up, run to the dressing room, change into street clothes while the rest of the company is taking the final bow. We dash out the back door into a cab to the bus station, grab our suitcases uh, from the bus station to the train, the train to the airport, and I don't exhale until we're on that flight off the tarmac, headed back to New York City. My friends go back to Las Vegas. That Christmas, I got a postcard from my friend Elizabeth in full showgirl attire, feathers and all. But I never heard from any of those people again. You've heard of the last, the last tango in Paris? Well, this is the last can-can in Hamburg. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. Linda Grindy is an amateur philosopher and a professional garden beautifier. She leads nature rituals and wild women camping retreats. 
Linda learned to swim this winter and just last week has completed the backstroke event at the Senior Olympics. She also competed in the putting and cornhole events. Her team won the gold in the cornhole event. Linda will be playing Maureen for the Missoula Backyard Theater production of Rent or Die this September. To learn more about Rent or Die and to get tickets, visit tellussomething.org. Rounding out this episode of the Tell Us Something podcast is Raymond Ansatiki. Raymond learns an important life lesson when he's in third grade from an inmate in the Montana State Prison. Raymond calls his story, Fruit for Vegetables, a Fair Trade. Thanks for listening. I had just finished my second year of formal education. And it was tough. Math was okay. Phonics, they're great. Sitting still, being quiet, not so good for this kid. I still had the ability to focus, and I did really good. I got the grades in second grade, but I got the good grades. (laughs) And in return, my parents offered that I could do one thing I wanted to do, anything, for a day. Definitely the biggest life choice I had made at this point. (laughs) And without the slightest hesitation, I said fishing. My parents knew I wasn't a Disney World kid. So I'm ready, I'm gonna get my day to fish. Two hours later, my dad comes in and says, hey, I'll trade you if you do a little cowboy and you could go fishing for five days. Oh, lottery. But he said, we're going to, so we're going to go to Deer Lodge if you're up for going. Yes. And by Deer Lodge, he means we're going to Montana State Prison. You see, my father's a professor at Montana State and taught animal science. And in the process of his PhD, because MSU is a land-grant school, the prison is also a state-run facility, they can work together. And for most people who don't know, the prison has their entire cattle herd, they have their own dairy, and it surrounds the entire tight incarceration area. So, but where we're specifically going is a place that Thomas McGuane wrote about Some young actors, Jeff, Sam, Slim, made very famous in a 1974 film called Rancho Deluxe. Rancho Deluxe is the primo housing facility for inmates at the prison. It's several log cabins. It's outside the main secure area, and these guys are cowboys. They could get on their horses and ride off at any point, but they don't. So we're gonna go there. I can't wait. The truck is loaded, the canned ham camper, we're pulling behind, and I'd spent enough of my childhood, I was potty trained at the prison, but in this phase, I don't remember the gate. I know there was a gate, I remember guards, but I do remember that crossing over the hill and dropping down into Rancho Deluxe. There's these cabins, this huge roundabout, corrals, barns, And as we pull in, I'm in my fishing heaven, and right out comes a gentleman, blue pants, blue shirt, blue vest. And he's coming quick with a smile from ear to ear, and this man's skin is the perfect tone of mahogany, 
but blended in are scars all over his face and not acne pockmarks. These are cuts, blades, wounds. But as he approaches and he's saying hi to my father, whose name is also Ray, the spaces between his teeth are as beautiful as the teeth that he's carrying and this love is coming from this man. He says hello to my father and gets his head inside the truck and says, hello, sir, who are you? And I'm Raymond. And he shakes my hand. He says, you must be the fisherman. And he looks back over his shoulder and he's like, whose bike is that in the back of the truck? I was like, that's my Huffy Wrangler. Dark brown, tan stitching, chopper bars, banana seat, third grader's dream. He says, well, if you're here to fish, I'd probably be willing to make a trade with you because I'd really like to learn how to ride a bike. I just finished second grade. I haven't been riding a bike long, so I'm probably gonna be pretty good at teaching him how to ride a bike. So we haul the bike out. My dad leaves to go do adult things. Chico and I start, and I'm telling you, I must have been the best bike coach ever because this guy rode a bike like he's probably ridden a bike a few years in the past, but he's wobbling it. He's doing the show. We're out there for hours, and as we come in, he says, we're going to make the trade for fishing, but I have this one other trade if you want to make it. It's one of the greatest life lessons, but I can't share it with you unless you eat my, my vegetables and your vegetables both meals a day for the whole time you're here. <laughs> That's big. <laughs> but it is the greatest life lesson. But I have to do it before dinner. He reminds me, after dinner tonight, no go. Can't start and do a five, four and a half day. I'm pretty good at taking my fork at home and I can stab almost all the vegetables in one round and get them in, sometimes two. So what's four? I could do four of those for this life lesson. About then, the truck pulls over with the food and we shake because it's a deal. And we go in and sit down. He quickly puts his vegetables on my plate, and it's this big. But I know we've all seen it. It was the lima bean, kidney bean, green bean chop that's held together with, like, the end of a really good lung cold when you really get the, huh, and that's, like, there. Oh. And they're all watching because every one of these inmates is loving this. One other problem, if you heard my reference of how I like to get vegetables on my fork, you can stab other things with a fork. So forks are gone, no knives. I got a shitty little spoon. I got to weasel these things in. So my four fork plan went to a lot. We get through. Chico grabs this big apple, reaches into his pocket and pulls out a pocket knife, which confuses me a little, and he sits down, and Chico, with the scarred face and these kind eyes, just started whittling. The Michelangelo marble Chico apple. This guy carved a face so beautiful, so intense. The eyes looked at you. The nose was so strong. The lips were perfectly pursed, and this hair. 
tied it on a string, hung it up. That was the end of the evening. I don't think I slept a lot. The next day we went and did cowboy stuff. Chico rode up and said, hey, come here. Pulled out a can, old empty can of peanuts. Showed me the best spot to get these big fat worms. We finished doing cowboy stuff, came back, ate lunch. Oh, looked at this apple. Not much changed, beautiful. That afternoon I fish. I fish every day for the next four days, pretty much minus riding for a couple hours in the morning. I had peas that were holding shape beyond physics because when they touched your mouth, they just stopped and went creamy and they tasted horrible. And then I looked at this apple and there were some lines by the eye and little lines were shown by the mouth. And the apple wasn't that same perfect color of an apple, it was starting to change. He wouldn't say a word, go through more projects, eat more bad vegetables. Julie and carrots should have texture and not just appearance. And I watch, and this apple, the nose is starting to curl back and sink, and it's really shriveling. It's physically changing its size and, and the presence that it's holding. I got some awesome fish. I also got to spend a ton of great time with my father. But I kept my eye on Chico, because these vegetables were bad. <laughs> So we get to the end of the, this process, which is our last lunch. I choke down another round of veggies and I look at this beautiful, wrinkly face. I'm standing by my dad, no one says a word. Everyone says goodbye and I'm crushed. Like I can't imagine what my third year old face was. And we got ready to leave and Chico was like, hey, we made a trade. Do you want to know what your life lesson is? I would also like to know what that face looked like because I'm sure it was pretty, pretty good. Chico comes up and he takes the apple down and he just hands it, puts it right in front of me, says, remember, no matter how beautiful or handsome anyone is, in the end, they're going to get old, wrinkly, and ugly. What the? And in my third grade lexicon, fart knocker jerk, I don't know, but I was pissed. But I was silent. I got in the car with my father, and as you can imagine, I'm a talker. I didn't say a word from Deer Lodge to Livingston. But in that time, I chose not to take Chico's words. I didn't know what a sacred clown was then. I still wonder today. But I chose not to take that. And now, I look at wrinkles, I look at blemishes, I look at noses changing, ears growing, and I remember that lesson. But the lesson I take from it is that no matter what, and as we go, those are our stories. That's what we carry. And our last day on this planet, in this form, is our most beautiful day. Thank you. Thanks, Raymond. Raymond Antetiggy was born and raised in Montana.
He is a reclamation scientist and spent a decade as a rodeo bullfighter. His wife is a world-renowned artist that shares her life with him on their piece of paradise overlooking the Yellowstone River and the Crazy Mountains. He loves people and the bond of storytelling that holds us all together. For a link to hear Raymond's TED Talk about being a bullfighter, head over to tellussomething.org. I'm so glad to be back in person sharing stories with you all. I'll bet you have a story to share, right? We've all got a letting go story. The next Tell Us Something Live event is scheduled for September 27th. You can pitch your story on the theme Letting Go by calling 406-203-4683. The pitch deadline is August 7th. I look forward to hearing from you. I'll call you as soon as I get your pitch. Thanks again to our title sponsor, Blackfoot Communications. Learn more about Blackfoot over at blackfoot.com. Thanks to our accessibility sponsor, Garden Mother, who subsidized the American Sign Language interpreters at this event, allowing us to support our friends in the deaf community. Garden Mother is devoted to the love and health of our community through holistic education and resources. All plants are grown with healthy soils that you can taste and feel. Learn more at GardenMother.com. Thanks to our media sponsors, MissoulaEvents.net and Missoula Broadcasting Company, including the family of ESPN Radio, The Trail 103.3, Jack FM, and Missoula's source for modern hits, U104.5. Gecko Designs. Learn more at GeckoDesigns.com. Thanks to our in-kind sponsors, Float Missoula. Learn more at FloatMSLA.com. Hi, it's Joyce from Joyce of Tile. If you need tile work done, give me a shout. I specialize in custom tile installations. Learn more and see some examples of my work at JoyceOfTile.com. To pitch your letting go story, call 406-203-4683. Storytellers are paid for sharing their stories and receive story coaching from Tell Us Something staff. Pitch your letting go story today. Visit TellUsSomething.org for more information.